Hello and welcome to your activities beyond the byline podcast. I am Evikiori and as we close the chapter on 2023, we find ourselves reflecting on a year that has left a lasting mark on both the European Union and the world. In this special year-end episode, we'll take a closer look at the key topics that shaped our coverage throughout the past 12 months. bids us farewell and without a doubt it has been a year of profound impact not only for the European Union and its policies but for the entire globe. The ongoing war in Ukraine continued to command our attention in 2023 underscoring the geopolitical tensions that persist in the region. But this year a new war emerged in Gaza further highlighting the complex challenges faced by the international community. The EU remained committed to supporting Ukraine, opening accession talks and advancing its enlargement policy. A notable shift occurred as more member countries elected right-wing governments, sparking discussions on evolving dynamics. The year concluded with the introduction of a migration pact, emphasizing collaborative solutions. And beyond Brussels, concerns arose about journalists and politicians falling victim to spyware prompting the European Commission to advocate for increased regulation to safeguard privacy and security. Russia's war on Ukraine continued to shape global events during 2023 as well, but what were the key events of the year and how will this translate into 2024? So maybe staying on the positive side, I think, hands down, the EU decision to start accession talks with Ukraine and also with Moldova has been um, kind of the main big decision that everything has been working towards this year. I've been traveling back and forth between um, Brussels and Kiev over the past year. And besides really the issue of winning the war, this decision was the most anxiously awaited one, not only by policymakers, but especially by by Ukrainian citizens that we spoke to. Alexandra Przozowski is Euroactive's Global Europe and Defense reporter. I remember one conversation with Ukraine's Deputy Prime Minister Stefanishina in her office in Kiev, where she essentially said um, that was two weeks before uh, the, the decision was made that receiving a no is not an option for them. And then she quoted Eminem saying that success is the only opportunity they have. So um, I think in the creativity and also in the, in the strength of uh, the approach towards the EU side, um, that has been quite a big thing for, for, for the Ukrainians. It was probably also the biggest surprise to all of us reporting on the summit last week when EU leaders decided really then relatively quickly uh, to give the green light uh, on the decision, managing also to sidestep Hungary, which uh, was um, threatening to block it. This came really despite the objections of Orban. So he left the room rather than using his veto um, after being suggested by German Chancellor Olaf Scholz that he should take the infamous coffee break. Uh, We should not read this decision yet last week as a wartime discount for Kiev in any sense. I think in reality, the country has done a lot of reforms in wartime in a short period of time, maybe even faster than some other candidate countries have done before. So moving forward, I think there is a lot still to do when it comes to um, the technical side. Uh, The European Commission will send the technical team to Kiev soon to map out the future negotiating framework and start the work on preparing the actual accession. But we have to be realistic that um, I think everybody agrees that this will take years Mm -hmm. and is not uh, going to be anytime soon. 
So the more fundamental issue, and I think that's that's one of the other key events this year, is um, whether EU leaders will be able to unblock the 50 billion Ukraine facility, so the financial aid package that is meant to keep the country afloat for the next four years. Uh, the next crucial date for that, um, after the failure at the summit last, last week, is the 1st of February next year, when EU leaders will reconvene for an emergency summit and try to push the decision through. I mean, for, from EU diplomats, we're hearing that this time around, member states are really willing to use a plan B if necessary, agreeing in EU26 format and make sure that there is a decision. Um, and then the bigger question for next year will also be whether Western countries will be able to consolidate the support for Kiev. The U.S. decision is still open, whether the U.S. Congress will approve the $60 billion, um, in support to Ukraine. Yeah, and I think that's, that's the major kind of landmarks to look forward to. What about signs of Ukraine fatigue, Alex? Well, the Ukrainians are certainly tired, but um, no, I don't think that there is an overarching fatigue. Of course, the attention span has shifted also partly to the Middle East after Gaza and is expected to shift even even more, I think, with the two elections, uh, two big elections next year in the EU and the US. But in general, what we see, at least in Europe, I think is relative unity. It's EU26 against one, mostly. So the big challenge for EU policymakers will be rather looking beyond the EU, um, looking whether they can get the global south on board when it comes to the Ukraine peace formula, the peace talks and um, a potential post-conflict solution. Now, moving to the battlefield, is there an indication that the resolution of the conflict might be on the horizon? So although I would like to be more optimistic, I think, in answering this question, but I think we should be relatively realistic about this. So I'm not going to say anytime soon. Um, Ukraine's President Zelensky this week held his year-end press conference and himself he said that there was no end in sight uh, really anytime soon. But to be fair, even the Ukrainian military and Western military officials say that this is a war for many years and they are not really ready to answer the question either. So hearing from Ukrainian sources and some colleagues that are currently reporting on the front lines, they also say the situation is relatively stuck. So Ukraine is now on the defensive along the entire front line, even on the left bank of the Dnipro River, where Kiev uh, has been able to make some gains for the last months. Um, But it is likely that this will continue in the next months and weeks and uh, Ukraine will have to fully concentrate on defense. Uh, the whole stretch of the front line is also heavily mined, which makes it very difficult for both sides to move. Um, at the same time, I think we've been also seeing that Ukrainian drones have uh, forced some Russian warships to redeploy in the Black Sea. So that can be seen as one of the smallest successes in the past weeks. So, so far... The Ukrainians are not desperate and the front lines are holding, but Zelensky has also turned down a request from the military for now to mobilize 500,000 Ukrainians for the army. It would have been a very unpopular proposal. So um, the bigger question would really be whether the essential support uh, can reach Kiev. And I think since the US decision is still open, um, we will have to see how that develops in the next uh, few weeks. And shifting our focus to another prominent theme of the year, the EU's enlargement, what do the developments in this area signify for the future of the European Union? In 2022, we were speaking um, 
largely about this geopolitical shift in the EU's enlargement policy. But it's really this year that I think the bloc has shown that it is actually really serious about it. So there has been quite a few milestones, the historic decisions, not only on Ukraine, but also opening talks with uh, Moldova and the conditionally opening with uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina, as well as the candidate status for Georgia and the Western Balkans growth plan. So I think that's that's quite a huge uh, step forward compared to, to the years before and certainly compared to the previous commission. But uh, the question now is how much buy-in there will be from the candidate countries to actually proceed with the reforms and how much follow-up there will be from the EU side. So I think the latter is actually the more um, important thing. Some EU officials I've spoken with um, have voiced concerns that uh, this de facto green light to Ukraine a few months before the parliament elections could give the far right um, in some EU member states an upwind. So especially when the debate about Ukraine fatigue would be used as a electoral weapon in some sorts. Mm-hmm. Um, but realistically, the idea is that it will be really the new commission that will have to uh, look at the situation with uh, a fresh pair of eyes. Until then, the candidates actually get some some grace period to speed up reforms and uh, align even further. So it's not necessarily negative to wait for the next commission. I think it's a good chance for them to prepare and, uh, well, consolidate until the next enlargement report comes out and um, then come maybe with a stronger offer from their side as well. So it's really on the next commission and then the composition is relatively unclear yet. So we will have to see who, who takes the commissioner's job who takes uh, over which institution and then um, yeah how that is translated into um, stronger enlargement policy. A recurring trend this year was the rise of right-wing and conservative governments in several countries. So which countries witnessed this shift towards conservatism and has this trend been building up over the past years? Well, the big one was the Netherlands um, in November, where uh, we saw Gert Wilders' Freedom Party uh, surprisingly top the poll, largely on the back of a, an anti-migration uh, election campaign. And I think that they are now still, I mean, they're still in talks with other parties on whether they will form a, form a government coalition for the first time. Benjamin Fox is the editor of Euractiv's Politics Hub. That's the biggest shift in terms of a core I guess an old a country in old old Europe, um, you know, uh, a far right party wins the election for the first time. Um, but then I, Finland and Greece also saw victories for conservative parties. Um, but then at the same time, we had Poland bucking the trend um, in September. Donald Tusk's uh, centrist coalition and very pro European um, coalition took power from the Nationalist Law and Justice Party. That. I think that was a significant uh, positive result, certainly in terms of um, EU relations. And Spain as well. I mean, there was a dead heat between the Conservatives and Socialists, uh, the Socialists stay in power. So it's quite a a nuanced picture. It's not, I think, I don't think we can just say that Conservatives are winning and far-right parties are winning everywhere. Um, But certainly the Netherlands was was the big big shock. This has been a general trend over the last, probably over the last 10 years, actually, that we, we started to see uh, far-right and nationalist parties um, starting to win elections. Um, I mean, obviously, last year, Giorgio Maloney um, winning in Italy was a big shift. But then at the same time, Marine Le Pen's uh, Front National has been 
you know, the second party in France now for, I guess, about a decade. Um, it's been a, but obviously there are the European elections next June. So this, this kind of narrative of the rise of the far right and of nationalism, um, and also the potential threat that it poses to, uh, European integration. Um, yeah, it, it's very much at, uh, at the forefront of, uh, people's minds in Brussels. This coming year, 2024, we will also have the European elections. So will this be a trend that we will see there as well? Uh, I think we will certainly see uh, far-right nationalist parties um, taking more seats than they did uh, in 2019 and 2014, for example. Um, I think the fact is that in Italy, you know, brothers of Italy are still going are going to perform very well. Um, Marine Le Pen's party will probably, I mean, at the moment, they look like they will top the poll in, in France. Um, we have Wilders in Netherlands, in the Netherlands, for example. So we're clearly going to see a fairly substantial block of, of seats from, uh, from these parties. Um, whether or not they come together after the elections and form one, one political group, which would make them much more powerful in the EU institutions, is another question. They've never managed to do it in the past. They won't have enough to challenge the kind of centrist majority. There will still be a majority, uh, you know, uh, the socialists, the centre-right, uh, European People's Party, and the and the Liberals will, and the Greens. These will they'll still account for you know well over sixty percent of the seats. And Ben, while mentioning migration, it's important to know that just before the Christmas break, on December 20th, the Member States and the European Parliament struck a deal to reform the bloc's migration policy, capping off a three-year-long ambitious effort. The agreement is preliminary and still needs to undergo formal ratification, and its laws known as the New Pact on Migration and Asylum were first unveiled in September 2020 in an attempt to turn the page on decades of ad hoc crisis management which saw governments take unilateral and uncoordinated measures to cope with the steep rise in asylum seekers. At its core, the new pact is meant to establish predictable, clear-cut norms that bind all member states, regardless of their geographic location and economic weight. The ultimate goal is to find a balance between the responsibility of frontline nations like Italy, Greece and Spain, which receive the bulk of asylum seekers, and the principle of solidarity that other countries should uphold. And what is your take on this? It fits in with this trend towards much stricter border controls. The pact is not going to change a huge amount, but the fact is that politicians in so EU leaders were desperate to get this package of legislation finished before uh, before the European elections, and a large part of that is just that they they want to show voters that they've actually done something. Um, there's not actually, in my opinion, that much substance in the pact in terms of there's not a huge amount that will change to the to, to the existing european regime on on immigration and asylum but politicians wanted to make sure that they were seen to be doing something so it's that plus the this trend towards um kind of cash for migrant control deals with third countries like uh, tunisia like morocco and we're expecting a um the announcement of a, of a deal with Egypt um, in January where the EU is basically outsourcing border control to North African states. All, it all fits in with this narrative of keeping people out and um, keeping Europe's borders much more tightly controlled than we've seen in the past. I think that, and I think that 
that kind of policy narrative is is here to stay for the foreseeable future now. And migration is one of the reasons why countries are leaning towards more conservative options. But I've been asking this year, is indeed Europe becoming more conservative? I don't think that Europe is necessarily becoming more conservative. I do think it's a bit more nuanced. I think it is about different policies. On migration, yes, there is this shift toward the kind of a more socially conservative approach to migration and to kind of keeping people out of Europe. Um, but on, you know, on the economy and jobs, for example, you know, there is much more kind of state in support for parties that are offering state intervention than, than in the past. And that's, so we're, I think we're kind of seeing more uh, an ele- electorates that are more socially conservative, but at the same time want much more state intervention and management of the economy than we would see from traditional conservative parties. And that's where this niche for kind of populist parties on the, the such as Georgia Maloney, such as uh, Viktor Orban and Marine Le Pen, that's kind of what they're offering. So it, it poses a real challenge to not just to the centre-left parties, but also um, conserv- traditional conservative parties as well. On another front, spyware dominated headlines in 2023, especially in Greece, where journalists faced wiretapping, raising concerns about media freedom and the illicit use of spyware. So what were the main developments in this saga? Spyware was a topic I was lucky enough to cover a few times this year. And you're right, it kind of kept popping up. The first time I covered it, I think, was when I was writing about Pegasus being banned in Catalonia in April. Julia Tar is Euractiv's technology reporter. And then in June, I looked more into how, how Cyprus has become the entry point for Israeli cybersecurity companies, including those in the world of surveillance software. And uh, there was definitely many links to Greece there. But I think when talking about a Greek angle, it might be more important to mention that uh, at the end of July, the Greek Data Protection Authority reported that 92 Greeks, including politicians, ministers and journalists, have received infected SMS associated with the predator spyware. And this is not only important on a national level, but also on the EU level, because if you're under surveillance, then you can also be spied on when talking to other European ministers, for example. Indeed, Yulia Nikos Androulakis, an EU lawmaker at the time and head of the Greek Socialist Party, PASOK, found out his phone had been bugged during a check that was conducted by the European Parliament on his phone. So what action was taken by the Commission and where are we standing now on this front? I think that's an interesting question because the Commission always emphasized that this is a matter for the national authorities. Um, but someone who is very critical of this answer from the parliament side is Sophie Intwald. Um She's the MAP who has uh, been spearheading the works of the Pegasus investigation in the PEGA committee. And she repeatedly said that the commission should enforce the EU law. And in October, Euractiv's technology hub reported that a report by Amnesty International found that the European Council and the European Commission are ineffective when it comes to regulating spyware. Could we expect more action on this matter in 2024? There is a rumor that the spyware regulation might be among the Commission's files next year, but based on what I've heard, I don't think there will be a majority for a ban, or like at least not for EU-wide ban. Um, and Sophie Intwad told me a few weeks ago that she thinks the focus should be on under what conditions spyware can be and cannot be used. 
rather than simply just banning it. Um, and I think the last thing I'd like to add about this is the European Media Freedom Act or the EMFA, because EU institutions found political agreement on the file on the 15th of December, but perhaps the most controversial part of the topic was uh, a national security exemption, and that would have allowed national authorities to use spyware also against journalists for national security reasons. The criticism about this was that what such a reason might be is up to the member states to define. So I think that's that was a really interesting part of the MFA. And um, but in the end, the, the, the reference to national security was removed, and uh, the a new wording states that the law respects the EU countries' national responsibilities as established in the treaties. Thank you very much. And that's all for today. If you want to refresh your memory, you can find links to all the episodes of our podcast on the previously discussed matters in this episode's description or in our show notes. I am Evikiori and this was the last episode of the Beyond the Byland podcast for 2023. We will be back in January, but until then, you can visit euractive.com to stay on top of the latest news. You can sign up to our podcast newsletter. And if you haven't subscribed to the podcast, you can do so on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music or wherever it is that you listen to your podcast. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy your holidays. As part of our commitment to accuracy, inclusion and transparency, Euractiv is part of the Trust Project.